Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Joel and I'm here with Taria Pitt to talk about her new book, Happy. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Joel. It's really good to speak with you. It's uh, it's always a bit strange to do these podcasts remotely as we're used to, we used to do them all face to face and um, I'm sure we would have had you in, but it's a, it's a very different experience. <laughs> I hope it lives up to it. <laughs> um, I'm enjoying so it. You, <laughs> so you wrote... You've written now three best-selling books. You're an Iron Man. Um, so why did you decide to write a book about happiness in particular? It, it arose because um, I was getting a lot of questions from people about, like, how I'm so happy and how I've managed to rebuild my life. And I think they were also interested in the fact that I'm still so happy despite having gone through this really incredibly traumatic and hard experience. And so I guess that's how the book arose about how how we find happiness in our everyday life. And it's not it's not so much about those large, gigantic cataclysmic events like, you know, winning the lottery or going to Paris with Jay-Z and Beyonce. It's more about finding happiness in your everyday life and being grateful for those moments as well. So that's, I guess, that's kind of the question that I came to in the book. Yeah, it feels, in some ways, this book feels quite old school because it's really sort of a pr- practical and it really is genuinely self-help in yeah. that you've zeroed in on happiness, which is the most obvious thing that people should be looking at in their lives because it's ideally it's the thing that we're all chasing, right? You zeroed in on it. You've really constructed this book like a structure. It so doesn't surprise me that you're a mining engineer. <laughs> like it feels really practical, carefully put together, researched, um, and I really, really enjoyed reading it. And it's actually, I think, hit hit my um, inbox at exactly the right time for me to read. Um, you do you think that? your background and your experience helped with that? Like you seem like a very, not, not a very woo-woo person. <laughs> yeah, no, I think for sure. Like you said, I'm a mining engineer. So I really, um, with everything I read, I'm always looking at it a little bit critically and wondering like, where did they get that from? What was that study? Where was that article published? And I think, you know, being an engineer really helped me with my recovery because I was able to, remove myself from the process and look at my recovery in a really logical and rational manner, which, you know, it does come across as being a little bit cold-hearted, but I think in a way it was really beneficial because I could see if I do X, then I'll have Y as a result. And if I do this and I could try and improve, um, you know, my flexibility or my stretching or, um the softness of my skin. So I think being an engineer definitely helped me with writing the book. But as well as that, I I wanted to have a really light-hearted tone and it's a little bit self-deprecating as well because I think often when we're thinking about our own lives and what will make us happier, um, we can get really serious about it and really hung up on it as well. And I think that means that you miss the point. So I think it's good to take the approach of looking at your life, how to enjoy it more, how to spend time with people that make you feel good, how to do work that you enjoy and that you find pleasurable. And really if you're doing those things and that constitutes a, a happier life. And so I think not I think 
there's a danger in overthinking and overanalyzing. And so I really don't want the reader to go down that path as well. Absolutely. It reminds me a bit. It was it was very funny. You have a great um, turn of phrase and very funny and light. Uh, it reminded me a bit of that. I, I recently watched the Hannibal Buress um, uh, stand up show where he said, did you ever think you were depressed and all you needed was a haircut? <laughs> and I and I feel like that encapsulates like your advice is quite practical at times where you're just sort of saying maybe just like chill out and um, <laughs> uh, go and hug your kid or yeah, exactly. the, the sort of like very obvious in some ways it's obvious but all self-help is um, well, that's what I struggled with too Joel because I'd write stuff and I'd be like that's that's just like common sense isn't it like isn't that mm. isn't that obvious if you're feeling around your desk and you can't get any work done and you're procrastinating like isn't it obvious that you just get up go for a walk go get a coffee have change of scenery maybe call a friend do something to pep yourself up but I think if things seem obvious to you, it doesn't mean that they are obvious to everyone at all points in time as well. So I, I tried to remember that when I was writing the book. Mm, and, I mean, it's a very fraught time for a lot of people at the moment and um, you have been on the sort of front foot on a lot of the stuff that has been affecting a lot of Australians at the moment. You had a huge year this year, not just writing this book but also living through the bushfires then the birth of your son and then coronavirus hitting. Yeah. Uh, and you, you still still somehow seem to have come out of this with a book about happiness and you're um, selling it to me in a way that makes it, that is quite believable. <laughs> How have you achieved that? You know what, like it's it's interesting and this is what I, this is one of the key components of happiness, right? It's it's our relationships with others and it's it's being able to look beyond your own life and and do something for someone else and again that's really common sense advice right we all know that but I think it's only when you practice that or you put it in action that you really feel the difference that it makes so I'll give you an example we had extremely horrendous bushfires down where I live um they were to the west of us to the north north of us to the south of us my hometown was virtually and literally surrounded by uh bushfires and, of course, because of my experiences, I was so stressed out. I was heavily pregnant with my second son. I had a toddler at home. And that the whole time I was just thinking about how the bushfires were affecting me. And I caught up with a girlfriend one day. We had a coffee. We just talked about how, how shit and how depressed and how down we were feeling. And that's why we decided to, to launch this little marketing campaign called spend with them and the idea behind spend with them businesses from fire affected communities would profile them on the Instagram page and that meant that someone from say Darwin could purchase something from a fire affected community and put money into the hands of people that really needed it at the time and help boost the the morale of the community where they were buying from so that was the idea that we had we weren't sure how it would work and then I think within like two days we had close to 200,000 Instagram followers. It just took off. It ended up having a life of its own and what that experience did for me, it made me feel like I was actually doing something useful. It made me feel like I was helping others and all of a sudden it wasn't about how the fires were affecting me personally but more about what I was doing to help others 
um, navigate the crisis more. So I talk a lot about that in a little bit more detail in the book. There's a whole chapter on it. But I really think showing kindness to other people in whatever way we want it, whether that's campaigning on behalf of Amnesty International or, you know, making a meal for your neighbour, I think doing those little acts really does help us with our happiness tremendously. Yeah, your the, your chapter on kindness I really liked because it sort of laid out kindness as a whole, sort of holistically, not just about being good makes you happy, which is I think something that um, probably is more common sense people know about but don't think about that much. But also you talk about sort of accepting kindness from other people and asking for help um, as part as part of kind as the idea of kindness. I thought that was quite interesting. Um, did, did that come from just deciding to write the chapter on kindness or is it no. uh, has it always been part of the philosophy? I think that came as a result of my experiences because, you know, after I was born, I, pretty, I, I was physically incapacitated, so there was very little that I could do for myself. And most people that I know aren't really that confident or aren't really that comfortable with asking people for help. Um, and that was definitely me in my case, but I, ha I actually had to ask for help because I couldn't do things for myself. So I couldn't put my suitcase on the overhead baggage uh, compartment on a plane. And, you know, sometimes I can't open a bottle of water. So in those cases, I actually have to ask people for help. And what I found was that when I asked people for help, they were happy to help me. You know what I mean? And there was an... There's an example I use in the book, like if you're at the grocery store and you see someone struggling to get something off the shelf and you pass it down to them and they smile and they say thank you, it actually makes you feel really good. It makes you feel like a bit of a, a superhero. So I think that's really important when you're asking someone for help, you're giving them the chance to do something really useful for you. Um, and, yes, yeah, so that's, that's, that's a little bit of what I talk about in mm. the chapter. There's a whole bit on um, learning to say no because I think, and I know this is true especially for women and for mums, it's so difficult to say no to people and often we say, you know, we kind of say yes without fully committing and then the other person thinks we're all in and then before we know it we're volunteering at our school's PNC committee and baking a five-tiered meringue soup. <laughs> um, and so I, I give a lot of strategies on, on how to learn to say no. And one of them is just quite simply, often we say yes to things because we think the event is like ages away. And I'm sure, Joel, you might even be guilty of doing this sometimes, you know, when you get asked to do something and it's like six Oh, absolutely. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 I'll do it. And then before you know it, the date is imminent. It's in a couple of days and you're thinking, why did I say yes to doing this thing? So I just say, like, imagine the event you're being asked to do is on in two days' time, would you still want to do it? And a lot of the times we'll, we'll if it's not something that's aligned with our values and, and how we want to be spending our time, we'll say no. Yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. It reminds me of um, some a friend of mine once told me that, you know, um, when you have tickets to an event and then the day comes and you really just don't want to go, um, <laughs> They said, would you pay that money not to go, the ticket that you bought? Uh, <laughs> and if you, if you would pay that money to not go, then you shouldn't go. <laughs> and uh, I think, 
you know, like I know it's a bit different. No, it's that sense, that sense of like prioritizing your time as being and what and what actually is valuable to you in the moment. Uh, yeah. I mean, though, I also know, like, so for example, I was down in Melbourne and a mate sent me a text. She said, "Oh, like, do you want to see the Harry Potter show?" And I looked it up and like. It was expensive. It, it went over two nights. I mean, meant I'd have to stay in the city, and there's all of like these logistical complexities surrounding why I shouldn't go to the Harry Potter show with my girlfriend. But at that time, I was actually writing the chapter on fun in the book, and so I thought I'll, I'll go because it might actually make some good content for the book. And I bought the tickets. We went. We had a great time. We laughed. We caught up. And so I also think sometimes we don't want to do something that we know is going to be fun and might be a great use of our time. And for me it was because I was going to meet up with one of my best friends. Um, and it can be hard for us to actually G ourselves up to go and do it. But mm. nine times out of ten when we make the effort to see other people, because, again, relationships are, are fundamental to our happiness, um, when we make the effort, we do actually really enjoy the experience as well. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely true. <laughs> and I think I I wonder if you think the if the combined effect really of the bushfire and then COVID and the lockdowns is going to have a sort of PTSD effect on the entire population um, post like at some point when we come out of this and we want to actually start seeing each other again and um, spending time in public. Do you do you foresee any issues when it comes to like being able to pursue our happiness in this way? Yes and no. Like when I wrote the book, you know, the chapter on relationships really encourages you to, to catch up with your friends in real life and and you know, I go out for a glass of wine or go to the Harry Potter show, whatever it is. And obviously because of COVID we can't do stuff like that. So I think for some people in certain circumstances, like say if you live alone and you're in Melbourne and you're going through the second round of lockdown um, and you work from home, I would say potentially, but I want to temper that by saying that COVID doesn't, hasn't affected the whole population in the very same way. So, for example, where I live on the south coast, We've still been able to go outside, go to the beach, go surfing, go bushwalking. I live with my family. I've still seen family and friends. So I, I guess to answer your question, it's a bit of both. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you say in the book um, when you're talking about what you're aiming to do with it, with the with the book, is is to make happiness sort of attainable. You, you sort of say happiness is attainable. Um, it's not an end point in, in itself. Um, I wonder if you could speak to that a bit because I think it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, I guess what I meant then was that, you know, you don't just you don't arrive at the happiness train station and say to yourself, yes, I've made it, I'm here now. Um, it's more of a wiggle line. Like some days we feel really good about ourselves, we feel empowered, we feel energetic, we feel happy. Other days we feel shit, we feel sad, we feel rejected. We feel withdrawn. We feel like our work is meaningless. We feel like our friends are, don't don't understand us. We feel like our family doesn't see us. So I think it it changes and it goes up and it goes down. But I think accepting that as part of being of being alive and being human, accepting that 
we're going to feel all of the emotions. We're going to feel good and bad in that all of our emotions are valid and that part of being happy is accepting that we're not going to be happy all the time and that's okay as well. Yeah, you don't reach a sort of nirvana where you've attempt, you know, attained happiness and then that's the end of it. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's relative to everything else, I guess. Well, I've just, you know, you probably know that to be true for yourself, Joel, anecdotally. Like you have really great weeks, great months, great years, and then you have some shit ones as well. Absolutely. I think that thing you talk about, about um, in I think it's the first chapter, the, is it GSA? Yeah. Food saving. The anticipation part is the part that I think has always, I've, I've always thought about this, that oftentimes my I get more happy thinking about something that's going to happen than I do in the actual happiness of the event itself. Yeah. Like I actually get more from it when I'm anticipating it. Totally. Not, that the, not that the thing is itself isn't good. It's very good. It could be amazing. But anticipating something good is like is, is a joy in and of itself, totally. Well, like, for example, um, I booked a cabin down at Pebbly Beach on the weekend and, like, for the past couple of months I've been, like, salivating over the photos on the internet. It's only 40 minutes away from us, so we didn't break any COVID protocols. Um, mm. And... I was so excited and I was looking at photos on Instagram and, you know, I just couldn't wait to get down there. And then on the weekend it pissed down with rain. We pretty much got flooded. We were, stra- we were trapped inside a small cabin with two small children. Um, oh. <laughs> so like, it, you know, it, it probably wasn't the weekend I had anticipated. But I got all of that joy out of looking forward to that event. And then now that the event's passed, it's it's a really good one from the memory bank that I'll be able to talk about with my family. And, you know, talk about that time we went down to Pebbly Beach and we got started out and, and all of that stuff. So I think anticipatory joy, it's 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 a real thing. I, I, I read a lot of articles about it. And it's a really easy way for us to be happier in our everyday life. So whether that thing is a new episode of Game of Thrones or whether that thing is um, – you know, catching up with your mates on house party on the weekend, that type of stuff. Totally agree. It's, it's really good to centre that, I think, at the beginning. You say it's, a, it's an easy win chapter, and I totally, I totally agree. It's good, it's, it's good as a starting point. Um, one of the things that's later in the book that I really um, liked was the chapter on purpose, where you talked about purpose in a way that I don't think I've read specifically that anywhere else before. Um, it's sort of... Um, it's a bit of hard love, really, like the sort of sense that your job, all jobs have shit bits, <laughs> and um, that actually if you think about your job as being some, like, holier-than-thou purpose, that you're probably going to end up being more unhappy. <laughs> that actually thinking, I think what you say is that making progress and caring for others and caring about what you're interested in other things to think about when it comes to purpose. I thought that was a really, really practical way of thinking about it. I wonder if you could expand on that, where that came from. Yeah, well, I guess I just got really fed up, Joel, of reading, like, a lot of self-help stuff, you know, like, find your purpose and, you know, how your purpose has to be this one true values-driven, crystalline, crystal-clear thing that's propelling you forward. And I guess I just... I don't know. I know for some people that might be true. They might 
be in a career which they feel is their life's purpose and they might derive so much joy from it. But even those people would still have to eat a lot of shit sandwiches. There'd still be things in their job that they don't like. And for a lot of people, their work may not be their life's purpose. And I think that's fine as well. I think if they're doing stuff that they're interested in, whether that's at work or whether that's in their time outside of work, and if they've got great relationships with people, I think that all contributes to their sense of purpose. I don't think it's necessarily derived from what we do for work. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you you interviewed heaps of amazing people for this book, um, including people like Lee Sales, Scott Pape, Maria Folio, um, Eddie Jacou, who's got a book coming out himself soon, um, Zoe Foster-Blake. Is there anyone that you've or any piece of information that was passed on to you that you just felt like crystallised something for you that you hadn't thought of before or any, any, any piece of advice that you would pass on or from, from I, those interviews? I think the interview with Zoe Foster-Blake I really loved because I'm a, I'm a huge fan of hers and I have been for quite a few years and it was interesting to talk to her about this, this concept of self-love because I think that, to be happy, it is necessary to love yourself, but not necessarily all of the time. And just, <laughs> just because you like <laughs> So I think you, you, you do need to, you know, love yourself and be proud of yourself, but it's okay to be down in yourself and be disappointed in yourself as well. Um, but I think... But I also think the idea of self-love is interesting because you can love yourself, warts and all and flaws and all, but that doesn't mean that you still don't want to make progress on whatever it is that you want to make progress on too. Um, you know, just because you want to improve something about yourself, whether that's your fitness or your finances or your career, doesn't mean that you don't love yourself now currently. Yeah, it reminds me of what you say about gratitude as well. That um, just because you're grateful for things doesn't mean you're ha you know you don't want things to change. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, like gratitude is a great place to start from. It's an awesome way to start your day. Um, it helps you to cultivate a positive mindset. But just because you're grateful for your life how it is now doesn't mean that you're not allowed to be wanting to improve your career or wanting to be writing a book or wanting to go train for a triathlon. Um, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I feel like I could keep talking about this all, <laughs> all day. It's a, such an interesting book, and I, I, I'm going to use it as a reference point. One of the things I liked about it was the, the TLDR sections at the end that I feel like will make it endlessly referenceable for people who um, read it read it through quickly and then want to refer back to um, the, the, core, the core points. Yeah, I am one of the people who love a TLDR, and TLDR just means too long, didn't read. I'm, I am um, a habitual skim reader. Yeah. I did those in there for people like me who are like me as well. Yeah, very, very practical. <laughs> um, but the, the, just to, to finish, I wondered if you could tell us, and you talk about your, um, your goals, which I think in the book you call Tampies, is that right? Yeah, champions. Yeah. <laughs> so I wondered if you could tell us what's what's next for you in the what's your next what's your next big champion? 
Well, the next big champion, I, I, I pretty much um, finished editing and revising the book only a couple of months ago. And in the book, Joel, you'll you'll notice there was a section on savoring, and savoring is about you know when you achieve something really big for yourself, whether that's finishing a book or developing a course or doing a house runner or whatever it is to you. Um, I think there's a really crucial step that we often miss, and that's the step of savoury. And savoury is just relishing and enjoying and savouring in your past successes. So right now, I'm still very much in the savouring mode. Oh, that's fantastic. And good advice for anybody too. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Wow. Uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic book, and um, we're, we're really uh, excited to work with you on um, getting it into the, as many hands as possible. Um, so you can get it from bookopia.com.au. Happy to ring a pit. Um, thanks so much for joining us. No worries. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.